tell you, it's nothing like having so many voices. It helps you appreciate perhaps what the night must have been like when the shepherds were out in the fields doing nothing but what they've always done, being in a very quiet night under the stars and all of a sudden a heavenly host. And I'm sure language does not bear enough of the description to account for what happened that night. And so it is, it is a joy to be with you here this morning, and, uh, and we will continue our worship by going into the text today. And so if you could turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, it's pretty much almost in the middle of your scriptures. If you find Psalm, uh, just go to the right a little bit and you'll find Isaiah. This may be the most uh, read text uh, during the Advent season to prepare for uh, worshiping the coming of the Christ child. Now, it, it would be good to say at this moment that, you know, there are many festivals that God gave throughout the centuries prior to the coming of Christ that were all meant to teach from generation to generation truths that they had been learned and discovered throughout time. And they also not only taught each generation that which has happened, but it also foreshadowed the coming of the Christ child. And so then, now being post the coming of Christ, we celebrate and add a couple things to it. We add Easter, of course, the hot pinnacle of the Christian calendar, where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then we come to the Advent season, because after centuries of prophesying that there was a child that was to come. He finally comes, and, and we're given all those prophecies so that we would know for sure it's not just any child, it's this child. And so let's go to the text. Let's see why this text is most commonly read uh, during this season more than perhaps any of the other messianic prophecies. Starting in verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. And from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So last week we talked about the significance of how the, the beginning of this talks about a child that was going to be born. So there is a beginning point. And it was not just child. It, it, gender was applied. Son will be given in this. And he will be the king. And he as king with the government on his shoulders then will be called by some names. And, we, and so when you look at that, it says, and he will be called. Have you ever thought of this question in light of that? Who will call him by these names? We know he will be called that, but who is going to call him that? Well, we know that clearly in the text that God assigned the names. He's the one that's given the revelation to Isaiah that this child that's going to be born will be given the names Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So God assigned them, and by his prophets then they declared that, that this is what's going to happen, and he'll be called these names. So it starts with God. But then when you get to the point when Jesus is about to arrive, the angels are, are helping Mary and Joseph understand how it was going to be possible that they were going to have a son. And, and they had not consummated their marriage. They were only betrothed. They were only engaged. But yet a miracle was going to happen. The presence of the Lord would come upon her and she would conceive a child. But in the process of explaining who this child was, this is what the angel said. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Ooh. So in the introduction of explaining this child and who this child would be, the angel basically points to Isaiah 9. 
He will be called Son of the Most High. And he will then reign on the throne of his father David. Which pulls in verse 7 of Isaiah 9 where it says, He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. Establishing and upholding it forevermore. So the angels then reveal it. So you've got God saying he will be called this. The angels are then now pointing, now that he's coming, pointing back to what God said and saying he will be called this. And then Jesus comes and he lives it out. And people begin to see these names manifested through him. Think about the moment. There were many moments where the disciples were blown away by the qualities and character and the power and the authority that Jesus had. But one in particular stands out to me. When Jesus had told the disciples to go to the other side of Galilee and to get in a boat while Jesus himself was going to go up and have some time of prayer, disciples in that boat going across the Sea of Galilee experienced something unexpected. A storm comes up, but just not any storm, a significant one where the boat was about to sink. They were fearing for their lives. Then in that moment of great desperation, they see Jesus walking towards them. Imagine how crazy that moment must be. They're seeing a figure come towards them, and as they can, the figure gets closer, they realize it's Jesus. Peter then asks to come out and join him. Peter gets out partway to him, only to find himself sinking as he was looking at the storm around him. Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. And I'm thinking, man, I would love to have the faith of Peter to even ask to come out. But then he pulls him up out of the water, walks him to the boat. He gets in the boat. He turns around and rebukes the storm. And the waters go instantaneously quiet and still. Do you recall what the disciples said in that moment? Surely you are the Son of God. Surely you are the Son of God. Because there's no way anybody else could have accomplished what you just did. First of all, you walked on the water. That defies all the laws of physics, right? Like, you can't walk on water. But he did. And then you certainly can't, by your own mouth, rebuke a storm and it stop. They knew, without a doubt, in that moment, certainly, surely, choose your turn, without a doubt, you are God. Man beheld him. So God assigned these names to him. Angels declared these names over him when he was born. And now, as man begins to watch his life, they too say with their mouth, you are God. You are God. But it's not just his followers that say he is God. Consider the day he was being crucified. There were soldiers, Roman soldiers, that were assigned the task of crucifying these three. The two robbers, or thieves, and Jesus. This was something that they were capable of because they had done many crucifixions. They knew how to do it. They had flogged probably hundreds prior to this. They had nailed hundreds to these crosses before. So they were accustomed, if you will, to something so horrific. Hard-hearted, to say the least. But while on that cross, there was an unusual level of rebuke coming from the people that were there. They were casting as insults towards Jesus and, 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 and mocking him. Again, that may not be so uncommon, but yet it seemed to be more intense. But it was what Jesus did in response that caught the eyes of the soldiers around them. You see, Jesus in response to, the, to the, all the insults and all the horror that's being thrown upon him, his words were, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He also spoke from that cross, seeing his mother grieving. He says to John, John, this is your mother. Take care of her. 
Then he has a moment with the Father God, and he's <laughs> quite a moment of words because Jesus had never known separation from the Father God. And he says, Father, why, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Then he hears with his own mouth later, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in that moment, something happened. And listen to the words that came out of the centurion's mouth. Again, this cold-hearted killer, this one that had orchestrated, overseen multiple hundreds of crucifixions, says this. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely, he was the son of God. So the pagans would cry out by what they saw in evidence to Jesus that he was the son of God. There was no escaping that as they were looking at this, no human being has behaved in this way before that other than it must be God. So to ask who will call him by these names, it's God who initiated them and assigned the names. The angels declared them when he arrived, and it's the people, both pagan and believer, that in watching his life began to say, he is God. He is God. Now last week, we began looking at these names one by one, so we looked at Wonderful Counselor last week. Today we're going to look at Mighty God, and then Christmas Eve, Everlasting Father, and then next Sunday, we'll look at Prince of Peace. But what we learned in this understanding of wonderful counselor is that he who is king, this child being king, was also advocate, counselor. Which is a strange dichotomy because typically whoever is the highest in authority, when, he, when the people of that kingdom would come to that king who is of highest authority. It's an advocate that comes between. A counselor that comes between. To stand in the gap between the citizen who may have erred and the one who has authority to, to institute justice. So to call, to say in Isaiah that the government will be on his shoulders, he'll be king and he'll have a kingdom, but then to say his first name will be Wonderful counselor. Now let me pause there for just a moment. Many of us grew up memorizing this text in King James, right? And, and many of you also grew up on some of the old traditional hymns. And you will know the song that says, Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It separates wonderful. In the King James, it has a comma there. So what is the correct interpretation? Because it's ascribing this separately. Well, in the Hebrew, you need to know there are no commas. All right? So commas are placed in later by translators to make sure that we get the correct meaning. So there's an interpretation that needs to happen here. You need to know that over the last... Uh, over a hundred years, no translation other than King James and New King James holds to that comma being there. When you look at the Hebrew, the term wonderful is a modifier. It's modifying counselor. So it's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. All of them are couplets. They are, there is a descriptor, a modifier, and, and then an office or a term. And so in this case, wonderful counselor. Now, for those of you that grew up on the King James and maybe assume that it's perfect, I'm sorry to tell you that the comma's not there. And what we can possibly do to find middle ground is just agree. Is indeed the Christ child wonderful? Yes, he is. Is he counselor? He is. So can we just say it's okay to say wonderful counselor? Some of you King James people just left me. But let's just agree. He's wonderful. 
But in the text, it's wonderful counselor. So there's a uniqueness to how he counsels. And I believe that you get it immediately when he says he's king overall. The government's on his shoulders. God is saying that. And he's going to be your counselor. To which the people would say, how is that possible? That the advocate counselor is also king. So that makes it a wonderful concept that is too much to understand. And as we learned, that Hebrew term for wonderful could also be translated astounding. It's an astounding concept that he is that wonderful counselor. And so as we studied the term counselor in the Hebrew, that he is basically our helper in time of need. Regardless of what's going on, he is our helper in time of need. The counselor guides us, helps us to know what steps to take when it's foggy and the storms are are raging around us and we can't figure out the next step. The counselor becomes the guide. He helps us navigate that which we do not understand, that which we're not equipped to know. But he also becomes like the counselor that's an advocate that represents us on behalf of those that that he calls his own. So he literally takes on the responsibility of going before the Father God who instituted the law and that which is moral. Jesus is at his right hand and knows equality with God is something that is there with him. And yet it was God that said, they have no means of making themselves just before us. So we must do it on their behalf. So Jesus, who is king of all kings, becomes also advocate. Where he, on behalf of those he calls his own, so those who have faith in his leadership as Lord and Savior, could then be trusting in the fact that he is now advocating on our behalf. He represents us like an attorney that is representing a client that is found guilty and is in need of counsel and representation. So too, Jesus does that. So too, we learn that as part of that counsel, he's like that priest over us that also gently corrects us. Counsel is needed sometimes, especially when we're wayward. Or how about he counsels us when we've been victimized, we've been wronged, we've been harmed. See, those people that are victims also need counsel, representation, advocacy for justice. Yes, these are true. And Jesus fulfills them all in a manner that not only can he do that on our behalf, but he does so with authority. Because the counselors that we receive here on this earth are not the final authority. They help us know how to engage the final authority. But they themselves are not it. But Jesus, as advocate and counselor, is the final authority. So therefore, his representation of us guides us to the best end always. And what I love about the text in John 14 that we read last week is that that coverage then is by his Holy Spirit. He says, I send you another advocate, another counselor. As I sit next to the right hand of God as your advocate, I send you the Holy Spirit who is with you and in you always. So there's never a point by which we are abandoned. Now, the beauty of that, as him being in us and with us, is that as Jesus said in John, he says, my sheep know my voice. They hear from me, and he speaks by his Holy Spirit in me. But yet many of us get to that place where we're like, I just don't feel like I'm hearing from God right now. Is that because God is silent Or is it because we've filled our ears with a lot of other noise or we've tuned out God or we're not able to hear him? A little bit of a confession here. I'm at that age where my hearing isn't what it used to be. So if you're talking to me from more than six feet away and there's other voices in the room, I'm having to work really hard to hear you 
and read your lips while doing so because my ear does not have the ability to sort out the noise. Anybody relate? <laughs> Only one amen in the room and a lot of laughter. The reality is, is this is what happens with life. It wasn't that long ago that I didn't have to wear glasses either. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is just what happens. But it's also true when you think about it. That if Jesus says, I give you another counselor, another advocate, and it's the Holy Spirit, and he's with you and in you, isn't it true that in our lives, that while he's in you and with you, that there are times we fill our ears with a lot of other voices, and we fail to be able to hear through and cut through all that? God didn't stop speaking or guiding or being with you, but we've sought the wrong counsel often. Or we filled our ears with needless things. But the beauty of it is, is that God doesn't settle for that. And he'll arrest our attention at times. We know from Hebrews 12 that he sends difficulties. Because it helps us realize that we need his help. And we seek his counsel. And, and we get to that place where it's like we're tuning out everything else. And we're saying, God, speak to me. I need to hear you. That's the wonderful counselor that he is. But today, as we're moving on into the names that he has, we now see he is mighty God. This child will be that uniquely special warrior who protects his people with power. That's the mighty God that he is. And how do I get that phrase? It's because in the meaning of his name, the term mighty comes from the Hebrew term, Gabor, which means mighty one or mighty warrior, a unique or special guard. So there's a uniqueness to the might that this is speaking of. So when saying he is mighty God, it's, you know, keep in mind in those days, they had all kinds of gods that they would put up and around their cities and towns. But to call this one mighty God, this child that's going to be born, will be called not only by God, but by angels and by man, that he is mighty God. It is because there is a uniqueness to his power that supersedes everything else. That's what they experienced on Mount Carmel when the prophets of Baal were crying out to their God who was silent and did not exist. But then the mighty God was able to consume his altar, even one that was saturated with water. You see, this child who's going to be born will be given a name that's ascribed to God Almighty. The Hebrews understood God as the God, the God of all gods, the mighty God, the one more powerful than anybody else. And now God says, I'm sending you a child, a son, who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And that you will not doubt for any moment that when you watch his life, you will see, just as the centurion uh, said, and the guards around Jesus on that cross, and those who were in that boat, surely he is the Son of God. Filled with might. Think about the importance of knowing that Jesus isn't just a God but he is mighty God at the right hand of the almighty God. The benefits are is that when we pray to Jesus, we are praying to one who has the power to overcome whatever our life may encounter. I've talked to at least two people this week where they would say, the news has been bad and it's been relentless for quite a long time now. And they were worn out, exhausted, and wondering if God was still with them. How important it is that when life beats you down, to know that you have a God who can overcome anything you are encountering. There's something that does to the heart that will give hope when hopelessness seems to want to be right there at your door. It also means that not only are you praying to one that can overcome whatever it is around you, but we can rely upon one who is more powerful than the most powerful of enemies. 
I said, I quoted this several years ago. And General Schwarzkopf making a comment in regards to what happens between divine and soldier. And he says, you know, I have never met an atheist in a foxhole. Why is that the case? Because there's something about that when you face death right in the face, it's right there and, and it's imminent. And you know that you could die any moment and that reality is right there before you. All of a sudden, whatever you've done to live your life in denial of a more powerful or an all-powerful God, all of a sudden, any excuse you had is gone. And you realize, I'm going somewhere. And I'm at the mercy of whatever is reality, right? And so people come to that place and they're either tormented by that reality or they humble themselves and cry out to God in reality that he's real. Here's the beautiful thing. We know from Jesus that even in the moments of our final breath, we can come to him and declare him as Lord and find eternity with him. How do I know that's true? Remember one of the things he did on the cross? The thieves, both of them, were hurling insults at him. But at some point while they were hanging on the cross, one of them began to be impacted by the words of Jesus just like the centurion. And he finally looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, would you remember me in your kingdom? And why did Jesus respond? Oh, now you've changed your mind. Now you're ready. You've been a thief right up until these final moments and you want to be with me in my kingdom today? Did Jesus hurl the insults back at him? Did he hold a record of wrongs in the moment? No, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. You see, when we come to those places where, there's, where death is right there in your face, you start realizing there is a powerful God and I'm about to meet him. And so for all the denials we can say with our mouths and with our heart, in that moment, it all goes away and you're starting to deal with reality. A friend of mine who's no longer on this earth but is now with God, a pastor that I served alongside of back in the 90s when I was in my early 20s, he was in his 70s at the time, doing part-time ministry, visitation, and so on. His name was Tori. He was Norwegian by birth and his growing up years. He had one time made mention in a meeting that he only slept four hours a night. And I'm looking at him in disbelief. Like, how can that be possible? So he proceeded to tell me a story that he used to be in the Norwegian army in World War II, but particularly in a paratroop ski outfit where they would be parachuted onto the tops of mountains and then they would ski down and surprise German soldiers that would be down in the valleys. One time his unit skied too far and they skied right into the center of an entire garrison that was way bigger than they were. They were receiving fire from all sides. And Tori said while he was a God-fearing man at that, at that time, he was not one walking with God. And so what did he do? He made a deal with God in that moment when he knew death was likely. He said to God, if you get me out of this, I will give you 20 hours of my day, every day of my life. I'm having this conversation with him in 1994. And he had kept his side of the bargain. Still giving 20 hours of his day. Again, you might say with your mouth, I don't believe there's a God. Or if there is a God, I don't know him and he's not really caring about what I'm doing in my life. You might say that now. But when death comes knocking at your door and it's imminent, your heart's going to wrestle with his reality. Because we're all created to know he's real. Jesus is, even by God's own words, not only his son, but mighty along with him. And when we discover this child, who is now, we know, the resurrected Messiah, we find hope and peace knowing that he now is our almighty protector. 
He's not only our Savior, but he is our almighty protector. He has power and authority over any enemy that could ever confront us. And when you experience that and you believe it to be by faith to be real, it will ultimately affect your behavior. It will affect your behavior. It is human that we operate with confidence when we believe that we have the champion on our side. I have coached many sports teams over the years. It's interesting that when the best player on your team is there with you and and doing well, the entire team's level of play goes up. But when your champion or your best player is injured, all of a sudden, the confidence tends to waver. But when you know you have the best player on the field, you operate with dominance. Bring this into a biblical perspective. Think about the story of David and Goliath. When Goliath was standing in that valley between his army and the armies of Israel, and he was taunting the armies of Israel from across the way, what was the army of the Philistines doing behind him? Shout it out. What were they doing behind him? Mocking, taunting, trash-talking, if you want to use modern language. That's what they were doing, because why? They believed they had the best man on the field. So they were not worried, and they operated with foolish arrogance. What were the armies of Israel doing? Quivering. They were afraid. Because in their minds, they believed the other side had the better player the better soldier. So they were silent and talking amongst themselves. Who who would go out and fight him? Then David shows up. (laughs) Think about this. A teenager that's likely around 16 years old, and he wasn't of big stature. Now, they say he was good looking. But I'm sorry, good looks isn't going to win a battle with Goliath. It just isn't. But David goes out, and did you hear in the text any taunting from Israel? Yeah, we've got our 16-year-old coming out to meet you. He's pretty good with the sheep. It says that Goliath laughed and began to mock the situation. Because again, in his mind, he saw himself as the more mighty one. And so did his armies. You do not hear in that moment cheering from Israel for David. Nothing's given. Then the unexpected happens. Because David invokes the name of Almighty God, the one who is more powerful than anything that is on this earth, Goliath met his end. What happened to the nation of Philistines at that point? They began to run. What happened to the nation of Israel on that point? They began to run after them. And a great victory was won that day. And then David would go on to become the champion of Israel. And wherever David was on the field, the men knew they were going to win. They knew. In fact, then men come around David and when they knew and people began to call them David and his mighty men. David invoked the name of God and God said, this is a man after my own heart. I'm going to use him. And with it, it affected the entire psyche of a nation. They went from being bullied to becoming the ones that were the strongest in the region and had no enemy that could win. You see, we have a mighty God that God says, this child is going to be called mighty like me because he's my son and he's one with me. And this will affect your behavior. And so that's why as those of us who have given our faith to Jesus Christ, we should be looking at him as the mighty one that gives us confidence and changes our behavior. But let's look at the name God in this for a moment because if we understand which, which word in the Hebrew for God it's speaking of in this text, then you'll really appreciate the name that is given to the Christ child. Because yes, Gabor, which is the Hebrew term for mighty, was in this text, but then the term for God is El. E-L, El. Which means 
God who is a rock. God who is mighty in power, who is majestic. And this name is usually combined with other things. So the majestic, strong name of God is El. Mighty. So then when you put Gabor with it, El Gabor, it literally is saying this child is the mighty, mighty, powerful, majestic God. It's not just God, a divinity, but no, he is mighty, mighty, almighty, greater than any other who could claim godhood. El Gabor, mighty, mighty, God. You might be more familiar with the term El Shaddai. Now, in that moment, in that very moment, some of you thought Amy Grant, Admit it. How many of you thought Amy Grant in the moment? That tells you everybody over the age of 40 pretty much held their hand up. El Shaddai, in its transliteration, basically means this. The mighty God, the rock. And the only way to give it in English, the strength of that name is to call it Almighty. So when you see the term almighty, it's often coming from El Shaddai. But in this text, it's giving it, it doubles up on the term. This child that's going to be born to you, who will be king, who will also be counselor between the citizens and the king, will also be mighty, mighty God. This would blow the mind of the Hebrew learner. How could it be that a child that is born, that has a beginning, is now going to be called by God and by others, mighty, mighty God? To appreciate the narrative of the biblical text for what this name can mean upon Jesus. We're going to read from the Old Testament to the New Testament to that which is yet to come, the journey of the name of God, El Shaddai, El Gabor. You see, in the Old Testament, all the way through, God refers to himself for the first time in Genesis 17.1. But then multiple times, he gives himself that name and others ascribe that name to him. And then to appreciate that after centuries of calling God, mighty God, a child comes and takes over the name. Takes over the name. And then God allows this to happen. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And that was said by God himself. This child, my son, you will call mighty God. So we're going to have these scriptures read over us. It's from multiple texts in the Old Testament. And we're going to read them as if they were one long sentence. Let it, your mind reflect and your heart receive the beauty of the name Mighty God and for all its meaning. And then we'll move to the New Testament when God allows that name to be used of his son. And then we'll end by looking to that which is yet to come when all the world will know him as Mighty God. So listen with an open heart and open ears, the text. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number a nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. 
gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. Sovereign Lord, you have begun to show to your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do? For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all of this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and our prophets, on our ancestors and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. God is mighty, but despises no one. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. And then silence was over the written text for 400 years. And then the angel broke the silence when he reveals the coming Christ child. That child grows up, becomes the leader that the world has been looking for. Listen to how God assigns him the name, Mighty God. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The church received those words as comfort. We know we have a champion. We know we are victorious and it should change our behavior. But we still know the enemy is active. We know the enemy is fighting against the tide. But we're also given word in the closing of scripture that there will be a day when the declaration of the mighty God that Jesus is will be, be spoken of by not only himself, but others and the entirety of creation. And so we anticipate the day when these scriptures come true, when Jesus declares himself 
as the Almighty God. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It's one thing to declare yourself as the Almighty One. But when the very armies of the Lord, the angels themselves, say the same thing, heaven begins to tremble. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The heritage of Israel, the 24 elders who are now in the kingdom of heaven also go first as part of the creation to be able to say, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who receives the mighty God name. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The church enters in. Jesus has spoken. The angels have spoken. The elders of, of Israel, the, our heritage, has spoken. But then the first fruits of the church that gets to speak in the time yet to come as to who Jesus is as being mighty God will be those who survive and see to the end the Antichrist himself, the beast, during the great tribulation. And they will declare with their mouths, he is, that is Jesus, the mighty God. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And then God, hearing the testimony of the angels, the testimony of his son, the testimony of the early parts of Israel, and the testimony of the saints who endured the tribulation, then God asked the question, who else will declare him as mighty God? And the church steps forward and begins to say. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Jesus Christ, Yeshua, the Messiah. His mighty God. Jesus, we come to you now. Humbled by your great power. Humbled by the fact that with all the authority you have, that in spite of our continued failures to listen to your advocate, to fail to follow by your lead at all times, you continue to show grace to us. You continue to show mercy towards us. And you do so from a position of strength, not as a position of failure or of fear. 
And so, God, in this moment, as Father and Jesus, you as Son and Redeemer, we declare your coming as truly being the one who fulfills of all time, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The government will be upon your shoulders and you'll reign on David's throne forever and ever. You will lead with justice and righteousness. We do not have to fear your character. We merely bend the knee to the fearful and awesome power you can invoke. So in our hearts, we celebrate you. Take joy and smile on your face that we can declare with our mouths that you indeed are Lord. We offer these praises to you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that day on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. as we sing this song. In the bleak midwinter
Again, keep in mind when Isaiah wrote this passage and it's being read, the natural question is, how is this possible? Don't let it be lost upon you that it was said at the end, that at the end of verse 7, that Isaiah mentioned, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will bring this about. So we know it can happen because the Almighty God says it is so. If you'd like to talk to someone here this morning, uh, to pray with them, to just kind of work through some of the things we've talked about today, maybe come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and by faith receive the wonderful gift of his Holy Spirit. We would be glad to talk with you. There will be people in the encounter room, which is to my left, your right, and they'd be glad to talk to you more about that. But for you, for those of you that call Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you go out of here, with your behavior being like, eh. Then you haven't got the picture. Jesus is the almighty God. And when you're on his family, you are on the winning side. So behave as such. All right? God bless you guys. Merry Christmas to you.